We're in 1 Timothy chapter 4, down to verse 10, but I want to review verse 8 and 9. It's worth repeating some of the things, and it's a good statement here that people forget. It says, well, basically 8 and 9, I'm going to read it, for bodily discipline is only a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. So bodily discipline, and back then what he's talking about was the Greek and Romans were so big into sports and athletes and so forth. The bodily discipline for athletic and even good health is only profitable in the natural life. It's a natural thing. All of us get to a state where there's going to be corruption and death. It's a part of the life we live in and part of the consequences of sin in the human race. So life and death, they're the lot of this human earthly lot. That's what we have to deal with. Beauty, vanity, strength of this life will end in corruption. As God said to Adam, From the dust you came, and so to the dust you'll return. It will end here. It will not be carried over. Only those who experience the rapture uh, will beat uh, the system, and they will be transformed in a split second. They will not experience death. And it appears that Elijah and Enoch put on immortality without dying, and they were witnesses of what God's going to do for the godly, okay? And the victory of Christ over death and sin is in him, and it's showing the first fruits of what he's going to do ultimately. So the original sin that entered the human race brought with it disease and death, and everyone basically is subject to it eventually. So earthly exercise and looking good and all of these has no eternal value. Of course, we nowadays know that most people back then had to work and had to do a lot. The poor and the moderate people, they were not lazy people. They had to survive and get food. They didn't have the welfare systems and freebies that uh, everybody's been given today, which nobody basically starves unless they're mentally ill and hiding in the woods somewhere. So we have a problem often with not enough exercise, and too much eating and drinking foods and wines. So we've added to this system. So it is profitable for the natural life. It's not basically real good or profitable for the spiritual life. It's just as long as you live, though, you can be more spiritual. So only profitable in that sense. So it's only profitable for a little time, and that little time is the lifespan of a human. Uh, But being godly, and that means being righteous, being holy and morally upright, these are terms the Old and New Testament explain very well, and they're required in both Testaments. There is no license to sin. There is no irresistible grace. If you are not righteous and holy and trying to live before the Lord, 
doesn't matter what kind of experience you had, you'll not make it into the kingdom. And that's why Paul said, he named all of these sins and said, if you practice these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Why won't you inherit the kingdom of heaven? Because you're not a Christian anymore. He don't consider you a Christian if you start making that your lifestyle. If you give yourself over to gross sinning, you're not in Christ anymore. You're not bearing the fruit of righteousness and holiness. And when he says, be ye holy for I am holy, he's not giving us something hypothetical. He means it. It means you separate from the world and you don't let the flesh and the world uh, rule you. You don't give yourself over to self-indulgence, the pleasures of sin, and the self-life. And it teaches us in both covenants, that's what it requires. All of the Ten Commandments are valid for the Christian. He has to observe them. He cannot murder. He cannot kill or steal, covet. These are moral sins. And even the Sabbath, the Christian has entered into that. We are in the eternal everyday Sabbath for the Christian because we're in the spiritual realm now. So all of those are included in the law of Christ. And when God rejects through Christ most of the professing Christians of the world and says, depart from me, I never knew you, it means they were never Christians, but they thought they were. And they were saying, Lord, Lord. But he said, you are lawless. You're without the law of God or Christ. You're not obeying him. You're giving yourself over to the sinful life. And they're saying, Lord, Lord, they believe he died on a cross and rose again. They believe he's their Lord, but they do not follow the Lord. They do not obey his spirit. They live what they want to and add a little religion to it, but it's not going to cut it at the end. Okay. So this life, if you're godly, is profitable because you're laying a foundation and you're bearing fruit and rewards for eternity. So to live godly in this life is very profitable to the Christian. Every deed he does, every righteous act he does, the Lord does not forget it. He will reward it. The same is every idle word that the wicked speak, every the least of sins, they're going to be called into judgment for it. It's not going to be overlooked. They will get judgment without an intercessor. They will get judgment without mercy in those cases. But the Christian, we have promised not only that we get rewarded uh, for following the Lord, but that we have a high priest when we fail, uh, that we can repent and change and do things, accept our punishment. Sometimes the Lord punishes or chastens. So we have those privileges if we're godly, if we belong to the Lord and we're following the Lord. See, many people think they're Christians, but as Paul said, you have to live in the spirit. You have to walk. It's a continuous state. This demonic teaching of once saved, always saved is just that. It's from the devil. There is no once saved, always saved. There is no unconditional love of God for the wicked. His attitude is goodwill. That's the love of God. But he has no covenant with them. And as I say many times, the greatest scripture people like is, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Well, he's telling us something. He loves mankind. He has goodwill, good intentions for him. 
He does not wish that any will perish and go to hell, but that all be saved. He said that. Uh But then a few scriptures down, Jesus said, and he that does not obey or believe in the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. God's contempt and anger toward the sin and the sinner. People think, oh, he hates the sin, but he loves the sin. Uh, No, at times he despises the wicked. When he becomes exceptionally wicked and violent, Psalm says he despises, he hates the soul of the violent person. He will mock the wicked at the end that refuse to help people and refuse to obey God and live righteously. When fear comes upon them when they die, he said he will mock their fear. He's not changed. So people preach the false watered-down gospel. But his love is toward uh, the covenant people. And he helps and does things for them. His wrath, Paul said, he's, we are not appointed to wrath, but final salvation. Well, everybody else that does not come to the Lord and serve him is appointed for the day of wrath. And God stores it up. And every idle word, they'll give an account for. And they'll pay back. He'll pay back. He said, don't take vengeance. He tells the Christian that. Well, the Christian cannot take vengeance against another Christian. That's called hate. He said, and you know no murderer, a person that hates another Christian, a Christian. He said, he hates him. He says, then he's a murderer. And Paul makes it plain. No murderer has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. No murderer has eternal life abiding him. But with the world and people that fight and hurt the Christians, We're not required to forgive them. That's God's place. And the scripture says, give place to wrath. Don't you take vengeance, I'll take it. But he has an appointed time to do it. So we forgive anybody, we can do good to anybody, but if someone harms you and they're a wicked person and they're doing it because you're a Christian, you can let it slide. But God cannot forgive them because they're not repentant and confessed. So how can you forgive and cleanse the sin of a person? You have enough problems with yourself. So he says, give place to wrath. But with true Christians, he demands that they forgive one another. And if they have to rebuke, Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. That means come against him. That means tell him his faults. And you can be angry about it. And you can punish at times. But he says, if he asks forgiveness, you forgive him. So it makes it very plain. Even Christians do not have to forgive Christians who are in blatant sin and will not repent. It's not our place to forgive them. We give place. That means we stand aside and say, I'm not the judge. And I can't pronounce something either way. But God does. And he'll take care of it when people resist his mercy and grace and long-suffering, then they'll give an account one day. Everybody will give an account at the day of judgment, okay? So being godly in this present life is very profitable to the Christian that follows the Lord. Living in Christ, overcoming the trials and temptations, and this will prove in our probation. The eternal security people, the once saved, always saved, they hate that word probation because it means you're being tested for a time to prove your faithfulness and loyalty. 
And if you don't, you will not make it. You see, they think you've already made it. And they think they have a license to sin. And if they fail in sin, oh, they just lose some rewards. They're going to lose their eternal soul because they've been deceived by lying spirits. Okay? So this probation, we have to be faithful. It's our life. Life, it's our lot. And Jesus said, he that's faithful to the end is saved. Not the one that gives up. Not the one that starts the race and quits. Hebrews says, heal your legs. Talk to those who have regressed. And he said, lest you be turned out of the way. And he talks about continuance. So our probation is the testing time. And we have to prove in this life that we will serve the Lord and be faithful. His message to the seven churches, every one of them, was if you overcome. When you overcome, you'll get all these things. And he was talking to Christians. So why do they have to overcome if they've already overcome? They haven't. John says you've overcome in the Lord. That means you're in the present. You are overcoming the enemy and you're serving the Lord. You're walking in the spirit. But it's not guaranteed. You can stop doing that if you want to. You have the ability with your will to yield to the Lord, the new man, or you yield to the old flesh. You have that ability. It's never taken from people. There is no irresistible grace, as the lying shepherds teach. So we have to prove when God let humans come in and he made them, he wanted them tested in a way, and he did not want robots and parrots, so he set the rules. Even the angels were tested, and a third of them failed and were cast out, and they're devils now because there's nothing holy in them, and God removed anything godly in them, and they're unrepentant, and God is not going to deal with them anymore till the day of judgment, okay? So as a Christian, most of our living here is trusting and having faith in God and his helps and power. So that's why we read the scripture to see what promises and what words uh, he gives us during these times. And then we overcome, we resist and don't give into the world, the flesh, and the devils. But we, again, make the decision. It's not God. He helps. He aids. All the branches must bear fruit, all Christians. Or the Father cuts them off and casts them aside, and they'll be burned. And Christ is the vine. And as long as we abide in the vine, we draw power and strength from him. Then we bear fruit. Christ cannot bear fruit in the branches without their consent. And the branches cannot bear fruit without the aid and the help and the life of Christ. So it's the two joining, yoked together. So man has his responsibilities. God does his. God does not repent for people. He does not confess their sins. He does not believe for people. He can help them in the process, but you have to do the repenting and confessing. You have to exercise your will, which you always have before and after you're a Christian. It will never be altered, never be overwhelmed. Only demon-possessed people are overwhelmed by demons. Christians are not. Christians, it says the spirit 
of the prophets, a subject to the prophet. That was the greatest ministry and gift in the early church was prophecy because it brought forth the word of the Lord under inspiration. Uh, but he said the spirit of the prophets is subject to them. It means when the spirit moved on them, they were not compelled or forced to say anything like a parrot. They could evaluate what they were given. John says, test the spirit and see whether they're from the Lord. So the Christian was not to be gullible because he knew the devil could slip something in there. He's a good imitator. He can match things as Pharaoh's uh, wizards did against Moses. And Moses answered, and Aaron with the rod, he answered each one of them. But he cleverly, the devil, matched and imitated, and he's still doing it. He comes as an angel of light, and he tells people things that are lies that sound good. And he did it with Eve. He said, you'll not die. Well, she did die. They died that day spiritually, and God had to make sacrifice and bring them back to a level. But they died spiritually when they disobeyed God. And God said, in the day you eat, you'll die. Well, they died that day. And they lived physically. Adam lived for 930 years, okay? But not in the garden anymore, okay? So we get helps and power to live above the world. That's our spiritual warfare. Through much tribulation, we enter the kingdom. As soon as Paul preached the gospel to people, that's what he told them. And the old and new, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord will deliver him out of all. The afflictions are because of the world, the flesh, and the devil trying to draw us back and trying to cause us to yield to the old corrupt nature that is still there. It must be put to death, kept under. It's not a one-time experience. It must be dealt with daily. Jesus said, take up the cross daily. It means every day your will will be a little different than God's, and you have to make a decision. Am I going to do my own thing, what I want and what I like, or am I going to obey what God tells me that I have to lay mine? That's what it means to take up your cross. You die to what you want because you don't belong to yourself says you're not your own. You belong to Christ. You have to serve him as a servant and as a child. This is required. And if you study scripture, if you don't, in either case, you're cast out. You don't have relationship with God anymore. So, see, people don't want to teach that, and you don't hear that. You hear an unconditional loving God that no matter what you do, he's going to find a way for you. But that's not true. And you'll find out on the day of judgment, you'll stand speechless when you see the truth, and there's nothing to be done about it, okay? So we need to rightly handle the word of truth and not water down the gospel. We need the proper fear of the Lord, respect. We need to fear sin, because that's the only thing can separate us from God. And when these Christians and these professing Christians and these once saved always, they'll quote that scripture, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, and they name all the things. But in that context, you don't see the word sin. Because he's talking to the Christian who is walking in the Spirit and following the Lord. Then that applies. Nothing can separate us. 
But if you make provision for the flesh and you indulge in yourself in the sin, that scripture don't apply to you. You can't claim that because sin can separate you and will from God. Don't matter who you are. He makes it very plain. Many follow the Lord and then they fall away. And we'll have a deeper falling away as it gets darker. And he's talking about true Christians. He's not talking about the two billion nominal confessing religious people of the world, Catholics and Orthodox and Pro. They all think they're Christians. And yet Jesus say he'll say to him, I never knew you. You were never born again. You never followed the Lord's spirit. You didn't obey him. You just mixed some religion with him. But he said, you're lawless. You're cursed of my father, okay? And so the privilege of being in Christ in this life, uh, we get some benefits of his promises and prophecies and that he will help the Christian and not allow him to be tested or tempted beyond his ability. He sets the pace as he did with Job. He allowed the devil to do many things, but he told the devil, you can do this and that, but you can't kill him. The devil just as soon as killed him. So he set the word and the limit because Job, when the test began, he was very righteous. He was the most righteous man on the earth. And the Lord sort of bragged to the devil and said, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth who hates sin and loves righteousness, uprighteousness, living morally and right before the Lord. So that's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He will not allow the Christian who walks and follows the Lord to be put in a test above he's not able. That's what it says, what it means uh, in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. There are certain temptations the Lord will spare us from and that he's not in, has no purpose, but the wicked and those who want to do their own things, they get no protection from the Lord. And they open themselves up to demonic powers and they don't get no help because they've given themselves to do what they want to do. And they're not walking in the Lord and they're not obeying him. So he has no covenant privileges to them anymore. Okay. Now let's go over and we'll still get into 10 soon, but I just want to stay here a while. Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 12 and 14. So then, brethren, he's talking to the born-again Christian. We are, who? The Christian. We are not under any obligation, any law, or any force to the flesh, to the old man. We don't have to rule its desires and give in to it. And we don't have to live according to its principles, its lust, its desires. And they're still in the old man. And we have to put them to death. We resist them. They're still there. And the old man's potential will be there until we're dead or until we're raptured. Then it'll be left. It won't go into the new kingdom. And that's why we're under probation to resist and overcome the flesh and the world and the devils. We have to do this, okay? For if you are living according to the flesh, the worldly desires, the unspiritual state, you must die. 
And he's not talking about just physical death. He's talking about eternal death. Everybody must die. But if you, by the Spirit, this is the help of the Holy Spirit, this is what God gives the Christian. He's called the help of the one called alongside. He helps us in our weaknesses. He gives us strength. He gives us encouragement. He gives his spirit. But again, we have to be in unity with him. He doesn't do it in spite of us. We have to yield to it. But if you live, if you by the spirit, you are putting to death the works of the body, you will live. It means eternally, everlasting. If you are keeping the body under the carnal nature I'm talking about, not just the physical, the evils that are in us. Jesus said evils within a man, fornications, lying, stealing, they come out of the heart. And so the old nature has to be kept in its place until our final redemption. And we have to overcome it. And that's what it means to overcome. We resist these things and we get help from God to live righteously instead of living wickedly and lawless as Jesus claimed most professing Christians will think they're Christians and he'll say they're lawless. I never knew you. You were never mine, but you thought you were, see? And verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. The term is used that means sons and daughters. All Christians who are being led by the Spirit, they're God's children. Those who are not submitting to Christ and obeying his word and will and led of his Spirit, it don't matter if they go to church. They're not going to make it into the kingdom, and he don't consider them his. So people need to go back to the word and get the clear word instead of the lying shepherds telling them uh, what they want to believe, okay? So it's not those who start the race that get to eternity. It's the one who continues and then continues to the end because he's under probation. That one is promised by God. He'll inherit all things. God will give him all things in Christ, okay? And when he tells the seven churches in Revelation, he tells what he will give. And the one who overcomes gets all of those things. But it's only to you who overcome. And he's talking to Christians. He didn't say in there, oh, you don't have to worry, once saved, always saved. He didn't say, oh, uh, you're mine now, so you can go and live like you want to. These are lying, demonic teachings by false shepherds and stupid people spiritually, okay? So Jesus said, he that perseveres, he means in this life and probation, perseveres to serve God and resist evil. The word persevere is, is explained well as the fish goes up the stream, the salmon, he goes against the current, but he eventually makes it. And that's what the Christian has to do. He has to go against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the Lord gives him the ability and the tools necessary to fight the warfare and to do his will. So he's not left to himself to do anything, but he has to yield himself to the Spirit of Christ. So God's not going to irresistible drag him into the kingdom, and he's not going to get there by his own efforts, his pharisaical works, or what he considers 
I'll do some good, it'll outweigh my bad. It don't work that way, okay? And so Paul was one of the few that we've explained to real, explained to us clearly. We have to go to the end, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Paul was given the insight near the end of his life of how he was going to die for the Lord. And he considered, and many people can't until the Lord reveals it when they're dying or they have a peace about it, they got to run till the end. If they don't, they're not guaranteed anything. They have to be overcomers, practical overcomers. And he says in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. So it tells you Christianity is a fight and a warfare. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. He didn't deny the faith and turn away from the Lord. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. He's talking about eternity now, okay? Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, the day of judgment and resurrection, the day of calling everything into account. He will give me on that day, and not only me, but those who are loving or loved his appearing. Only the person who walks in the Lord and a Christian wants the Lord to return. If you ain't living right and you're playing with sin, you better not be there when the Lord returns. John says, if you know he's pure, you must live pure and not be ashamed when the Lord recomes. Because many uh, professing Christians, many once saved Christians that backslidden and become carnal and lukewarm, Oh, they believe the right doctrine and everything, teaching. They're going to be ashamed. The word means disappointed when the Lord becomes. Why is it going to be disappointed? Because he's going to leave them. They're not his. They're like the five foolish virgins. They slept, which is a symbol of sin. They let the light go out. They let the spirit of Christ in them depart. And they were lazy. And then when they got up and tried to get ready, he's telling us, once the master shuts the door, there ain't no time to get ready. When the rapture takes place, it's going to be in a split second or less. And nobody's going to have time. They're going to be as they are. So if the Christian is not living righteously and pure, as John says, then he's going to be disappointed. He's going to be highly disappointed. Some believe that's why many will come out of great tribulation because most of them will be professing Christians that know Christian doctrines and teachings. And once they're left behind, they'll figure out, but they will die for the Lord during their lifetime. The Antichrist will see to it. So they will have to give up their lives and walk with the Lord then until they're put to death. But see, the one who's already walking in the spirit and taking up his cross daily, he doesn't have to go through this process. One of the churches, the Lord said, because you have endured my word, you have been faithful, I will keep you from the hour of trial. I won't let you come into that. But the whole world is going to come into that at one time. And many backslidden Christians and many, many, many who think they're Christians because they go to church and they believe Jesus is son of God, but they don't follow him or they're not led by him. And so he'll say, I don't know you. 
And it's interesting with the five foolish virgins, he didn't say to them like he did to the masses of Christianity. He said, I never knew you. You never were a Christian. You had mental belief of who I was. You called me Lord, but you were lawless. You did not do the will of my father. But to the five foolish virgins, when they knock and he shuts the door, they said, open to us. And he said, I do not know you. He knew them at one time. They were his. But then he said, I don't know you. So that's the true backslidden Christians. That's what I call virgins. They're Christians. They were godly at one time. Okay. And now that we've come to that state of review, now we'll go into verse 10. I felt it was worth repeating these things. I felt a little rushed the last time. Verse 9 again, we, just to read it, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. What? Verse 8, godliness is profitable for this life and the life to come. That's a very good statement, and he wants you to understand that. Verse 10, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially the believers. Now, it's interesting in this statement here, he's referring not only to God the Father, but he's strictly calling Christ God, because he's usually, it refers to Jesus as being our Savior. But here he says, the living God, which is used in the old and new, he's our Savior. It was the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're one in unity. They're so close that we don't understand. We call them persons, but they never do anything without the other's consent. It's part of the Godhead. Jesus is called the everlasting Father, the Almighty God, the great judge. He's called this. And so God is our Savior, often is mentioned in the old, but occasionally we'll glimpse something of this in the New Testament. And sometimes you have to really study the scripture when he says God and the Father and Jesus, you don't know if he's separating them or he's speaking of one person. Well, it's as Jesus said to Philip, he's seen me, he's seen the Father. Every work and every ministry is done through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so he saved us through himself, taking on humanity, taking on the human nature. And then when he was going to give his life up, he asked the father as a man, as the son of God and the son of man, restore to me the glory I had with you before the world was. What was that glory? He was one of God. He was the creator. Uh -huh. All things, John says, was created by him and for him. And so he joins in his complete use. He had limited when he took on the human nature, but he had his separate humanity while he was on earth. And he said, as the father has life in himself, so he has given the son. He means the earthly son. He's not talking about the word of God from eternity. When he was given a human life, it was separate from God. God was in him and joined with him but he was limited and could not use it. He had to submit to God as a man and overcome the world and live 30-some years and be sinless, and then he could offer himself for the sins of the world, and that's what he did, okay? So he says, 
Because we know this about God in us for this present life and the world to come, we labor. That word means work spiritually, and we strive. This means that we fight. We have warfare, okay? We wrestle with. So he's telling you that a Christian has to do that. You know, I hear people say, oh, I'm saved now. It's all downhill. Well, yeah, you're going downhill, but the gospel's not. People say, I've read the end of the book, we win. The we is not you if you're not walking in the spirit and overcoming. And a lot of professing Christians are going to find that out when he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And they're going to be speechless and horrified. And they can't do nothing about it as they're consigned to the lake of fire. Okay, Eternal punishment. So we fight and we labor to overcome and we fix our hope. We have a hope as future. See, our salvation and eternal life is in the present as we walk in Christ. As the branch stays in the vine, we have eternal life. But it can be forfeited and passed over if we don't stay in the vine. If we backslid, go back to the world and live the way we want, become worldly-minded, double-minded, and carnal, then the Father will cut that branch off from Christ. That's what Jesus tells us. Okay, So we fight and labor and resist the world, the flesh, and the devil in our great probation. And we're giving promises and aid that we can do this and do it to the end. He is called alongside. He has, the Spirit of Christ is in us to help us overcome these things. We are yoked to him. But in yoking, there's still two. Paul said he's that joined himself to the Lord is one spirit. He didn't mean one different, the same being. He meant they're in unity like uh, supposedly the husband and wife supposed to be. But they still retain who they are. But they work as a unit and in harmony, and that's what he's talking about. So uh, the two oxen go along and are yoked to get anything done properly. They don't fight against each other. One don't go one way and one go the other. To get the strange, the plowing and done right, they have to walk in the same direction. So if we're yoked to Christ, he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and I'll bear your birth. But we have to consent to it, and we have to work with him. Let's take a break here. 